Hi, I'm Asha Tomlinson. And I'm David Common. And we're hosts of CBC Marketplace. We're award-winning investigative journalists that want to help you avoid clever scams, unsafe products, and sketchy services. Our TV show has been Canada's top investigative consumer watchdog for more than 50 years. But this is our first podcast. CBC Marketplace podcast is available now on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC podcast. Hello, I'm Brent Bambury. This is day six. The blast radius from Jeffrey Epstein's reach continues to grow. New insights about the high-profile network of people associated with Epstein. A lot of online speculation and misinformation that some sort of list would be released. That is not what this is. How the Epstein docs fuel conspiracy theories and fire up the QAnon gang. That's coming up on day six. Today democracy's big year. We could be in trouble. What 2024 will tell us about the future of democracy. Mapping the debris. Significant sustained change uh, during the war over the past three months now. Tracking the physical damage to Gaza and the rate of the ruin. And sprung from the kingdom. Mickey Mouse as a slasher film villain. Mickey Mouse enters the murky world of the public domain. All today on Day 6, the Build a Better Mousetrap Edition. This has something to do with the Epstein list that came out? <laughs> feels like, <laughs> feels like. <laughs> That's supposed to be coming out soon. That's supposed to be coming out soon. Look, this guy's been it's waiting in his wine people. cellar. Yeah. I've been waiting in my wine <laughs> cellar for this <laughs> thing. A lot of people, including Jimmy Kimmel, are really hoping that doesn't happen. That's New York Jets quarterback Aaron Rodgers. And this is going to require some explaining. So let's start here. You heard him mention the Epstein list. This week, a court in New York unsealed a series of documents that named dozens of people associated with Jeffrey Epstein. Epstein was a wealthy financier and convicted sex offender who orchestrated a sexual trafficking ring involving underage girls. He was also friendly with many rich and powerful people. Epstein died by suicide in jail in 2019. There's been rampant speculation, much of it misinformation, that the so-called Epstein list was going to include new allegations and suspects. But that's not what this is. It's also not a list. It's a series of court documents, and most of the information they reveal has already been reported. And for the record, Jimmy Kimmel's name was nowhere to be found. So what was Aaron Rodgers going on about then? Knowingly or not, he was referencing an aspect of the QAnon conspiracy theory, which takes Jeffrey Epstein's actual actions and offenses, mixes in the powerful people he rubs shoulders with, and turns it into a conspiracy theory about an all-powerful leftist elite that subsists on the blood of children. That man did not take his own life in prison. <laughs> I am not making this up, although clearly someone is. Will Summer is a media reporter for the Washington Post and the author of Trust the Plan, The Rise of QAnon and the Conspiracy that Unhinged America. Will, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me. Social media went berserk in anticipation of the release of these documents. Why does the Epstein case inflame the conspiracy-minded? I mean, 
I think fundamentally it is it is so strange. I mean, even if you know we look at the truth of it, um, it is so bizarre, and there are so many bizarre elements. You know, we have allegations of, of sexual crimes involving you know incredibly rich and powerful people. Um, we have an island. Uh, you know, we have we have planes. All all of these. I mean, it's out of uh, it's like a, out of James Bond. Um, and so from that fundamental aspect, I think it's sort of what inflames people. Um, you know, the right, I think, is especially interested in the, the Bill Clinton angle. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, fundamentally, Jeffrey Epstein's mysterious death, I think, um, which has really accelerated all of that. People who were not already into QAnon started looking around and saying, you know, what's going on with this? And QAnon people said, well, we have the answer to that, you know, that that this is actually about a, a cabal of, of people in the deep state who eat children. Um, and so really Epstein is, is really a, a key gateway into QAnon. But according to QAnon mythology, Donald Trump is this messianic figure who's going to save the world. So how do QAnon supporters explain Trump's connections to Jeffrey Epstein? Well, this is so fascinating. I mean, on the surface, you know, if you came to this without any preconceptions, you'd say, wow, this Epstein case does not look great for Donald Trump. You know, there's a video of them hanging out. We know they were friends. Um, you know, we had, there's a, there's a quote of Trump talking about Epstein, uh, and, and their sort of mutual love for women and young women. Um, Donald Trump appointed the the prosecutor who gave Epstein a sweetheart deal initially. Uh, he appointed him to the cabinet. And so there's a lot, uh, I would say that if you were really looking to dig into Epstein things, there's a lot to look at with Donald Trump. Um, but the QAnon people are masters at, uh, at rationalization and cognitive dissonance. And they say, well, you know what? Trump was going undercover there. That's that video of him and Epstein. That's because Trump w- was infiltrating Epstein's organization. So, I mean, it, it, it sort of departs the realm of logic that, that the average person is used to, but they really believe it. it, it some of the ideas that, that, that are presented by QAnon have been picked up and taken from the fringe to the more powerful sphere of elected politicians and media figures. Are you surprised that QAnon has been able to move from the fringes to the center of American politics? I have been surprised over the course of um, – I, I guess it's been six years now that I've been following QAnon uh, and, and watching it grow from what was – what I thought was at the time. I thought, you know, it, it, at one point in 2018, I saw them mar- a couple hundred QAnon believers marching in downtown D.C. and chanting their slogans and I thought – well, it's not going to get any bigger than this. Um, and then they started running for office, uh, or in the case of Marjorie Taylor Greene, got elected. Mm-hmm. Um, and we start seeing the, these drumbeats. And ultimately, you know, they were involved in QAnon played a big role on January 6th. So the the continued growth of QAnon and its sort of linked conspiracy movements to the extent that um, even people who on the right who don't call themselves QAnon believers, they believe in these just outlandish QAnon-style conspiracy theories, either about um, world elites eating children or in satanic rituals. Or, um, or that the election was stolen, or January sixth was a was an FBI it was set up by the FBI. We have a poll out uh, from the Washington Post this week uh, saying that roughly a quarter of Americans believe that January sixth was was created by the FBI. I um, saw that; it's incredible. I mean, yeah, and I mean, it is that in some ways. It, it, it can seem like QAnon is now no longer as prominent as it was, but in many ways it's because I think its beliefs have been mainstreamed within the Republican Party and the conservative movement in America. I mean, it seems absurd to be asking this question, but but what what kind of impact do you think then Q, that QAnon could have on on this year's election? Yeah, I mean, I I think QAnon has really the potential, particularly uh, 
once Donald Trump, I think, wins the primary, I think there's a good chance that we could see it really rev up um, in public a lot more. Uh, it is a very useful conspiracy theory for the Republican Party. Um, we've seen that over and over there were opportunities for the party and, and in particular Donald Trump to disown them. I mean, QAnon believers would say, well, if this is fake, Donald Trump will simply well, – he would say so, right? And, mm -hmm. and he sort of has this silence about it, which suggests that it's fake. And then in 2020, he got a lot more aggressive about it and started saying, well, you know, they're right about some things and we are going after the pedophiles. Um, and, and, and so certainly I think we, we're seeing a Republican Party that, that sees QAnon as a faction that, that has to be respected, as, as bizarre as that is. You've gone to the QAnon rallies. At the grassroots, you've talked to the people who buy into this world. What void – are conspiracy theories filling for these people? What's the draw for them? You know, it's so interesting. I mean, there was really uh, – there are a lot of of different explanations, I think. Um, but fundamentally, I think it gives people a sense of community um, and it gives them a sense of of agency in their own lives. Um, I, I think often about an interview I saw with a QAnon believer because so much of QAnon was about predicting the future and that there's a, a sort of a, a story beneath the news that you're seeing, that there's a real way to interpret events that the vast majority of people don't have. Um, and so this guy said, um, you know – I see the news before it's going to happen, hmm. um, and 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 so that and this was my my sense is just a, just an average person, um, and so from from his point of view, QAnon was giving him sort of a sense of 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 power in his own life, um, in that uh, and, and and perhaps setting him apart from other people. Backing up to Jimmy Kimmel, he was worried about his family's real world safety. Do you think that 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 call outs like the one that Aaron Rodgers made? Do you think they do pose danger to other people who have been? pulled into this by the conspiracy theorists? Absolutely. I mean, I, I think the there is such, a, you know, particularly in the United States where, where guns are so easy to come by, all it takes is really one unhinged person to cause a lot of damage. Um, and we've seen in the case of QAnon, there are several instances where QAnon believers have either murdered members of their family because of their beliefs, um, because they sort of get revved up and are convinced that their family is working for the cabal, um, or that they have have tried to murder or threatened um, or, or successfully murdered people that they see as sort of enemies of QAnon. In, in a few years ago, there was a case where a disturbed young man murdered the head of one of the, the national mafia families here because he was trying to arrest him in the name of Q. Um, um, as, as truly bizarre as that sounds. Um, and, you know, it, on a slightly more mundane level, I've talked to many people, including in my book, um, who had had their lives just obliterated because these are these were very normal people who suddenly, through some twist of fate, found themselves QAnon's targets. Um, that one QAnon promoter would say, this woman's working for the cabal and she's helping to smuggle children for sexual slavery. And suddenly they're getting all these death threats and their families are being run out of town. I mean, it, it, I think fundamentally what people should understand and, and why these are such serious accusations to be throwing around um, is that as far as QAnon believers are concerned, I mean, if you are associated with Jeffrey Epstein or, or accused of that or, or somehow working for the, this cabal that QAnon is working against, I mean, that is essentially saying that, that this person not only is a pedophile who abuses children, but, but murders children in satanic rituals. I mean, it's like as evil as any human could, being could be, and the law enforcement isn't doing anything about it. And so that's why we see these incidents of, you know, if you want to call it vigilante justice, where QAnon people say, well, I've got to get a gun and handle this myself. Will Summer, what a world. Thank you very much for being with us. Thanks for having me. Will Summer is a media reporter for The Washington Post and the author of Trust the Plan, The Rise of QAnon, and The Conspiracy Theory that Unhinged America. It's out in paperback next month. 
Here are some other stories we're keeping an eye on this weekend. Yes, we are emergency. We are depressurized. We do need to return back to. We have 177 passengers. A plane carrying 177 people had to make an emergency landing last night after a chunk of its outer shell blew off during flight. Passengers say that for about 15 minutes, wind tore through the cabin and they could see city lights out of the open hole. The plane landed safely in Portland and everyone is okay. The plane is an Alaska Airlines Boeing 737 MAX 9. MAX jets were grounded all over the world after two MAX 8 planes crashed in 2018 and 2019. It's not clear yet what caused this incident. And the courts, much like the government, are becoming increasingly aware that we're not living in the same world today that we were living in 20 years ago. A federal court has upheld a decision to block a Chinese engineering student from studying in Canada for being a potential spy. Yue Kang Li says he planned to study microfluidics at the University of Waterloo, then returned to China to work in the health sector. The government didn't present evidence Li has ever engaged in spying, and his research wasn't focused on technologies with military applications. Chief Justice Paul Crampton said China targets students and scientists for spying and intellectual property theft, and Li could be recruited or coerced into it. The federal ruling expands the definition of what the courts consider espionage and comes with wide-reaching implications for universities and international researchers. Still to come on Day 6, a new technology tracks the scale and the pace of war damage in Gaza. Mickey Mouse has been pretty much everywhere. How about we look for some sunken ruins or mermaids? The deep sea. Commander Mouse, you are clear for re-entry. Roger. Space. Gosh, I can't believe you fellas are taking me to Potato Land. And even, for some reason, a theme park made of potatoes. But this week, Mickey Mouse made his biggest journey of all. Into the public domain. Or at least a version of Mickey did. The one from the 1928 film Steamboat Willie. That happened on Monday, and in the five days since. The internet has had a very, very good time. Putting Mickey in a lot of scenarios that Disney probably isn't too happy with. So we asked Addie Robertson, The Verge's senior tech and policy editor, to take us through it all. Every January 1st for the past several years, we've had a slew of new pieces of art that pass out of copyright protection, and anyone really can use them for any purpose. In 2024, that includes a really landmark piece of animation, which is Steamboat Willie. Steamboat Willie is a black and white cartoon that is one of the earliest appearances of Mickey Mouse in a form that isn't exactly the mouse that we know today, but that is instantly recognizable. It's been a joke for decades now that copyright terms always increase whenever Mickey Mouse is about to enter the public domain. There have been a couple of cases where Steamboat Willie was just right on the cusp, and then this copyright extension suddenly protects it for another couple of decades. 
And Disney was one of the groups that was lobbying for this and effectively meant that nothing entered the public domain for a couple of decades. And so there was this sense that Disney, which is a company that made a huge amount of money reimagining fairy tales and folk tales that were created by other people, that it then added to locking up culture and locking up its very early works long, long after the people who originally created them are gone. It's only the version in Steamboat Willie and in a version of another early short called Plain Crazy entering the public domain. Later versions of Mickey Mouse, Mr. Stokowski. Mr. Stokowski. like say the Sorcerer's Apprentice Mickey from Fantasia, oh, uh, 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 good morning, Mr. Scrooge. the Mickey from Mickey's Christmas Carol. There are specific versions of Mickey Mouse that are not going to enter the public domain for a while. I want to come inside my clubhouse. The other complication is that Mickey Mouse isn't just a copyrighted character. He is a trademark figure for Disney. It means that you shouldn't make something that's going to mislead people into believing it's an official Disney product. A lot of the projects we've seen that are reworking Mickey Mouse right now, they get their charge from being a sort of middle finger to Disney. We've seen Come get me, you sons of <laughs> Mickey Mouse firing machine gun. There's a film called Mickey's Mouse Trap. There's blood all over the jungle gym. With Mickey Mouse as a slasher film villain. I thought it was just rodents, but there's something else in here. There's a game called Infestation Origins that imagines Mickey Mouse as a sort of paranormal figure that's an urban legend. Exterminators are our last hope. Disney's reputation is that it's very protective of its intellectual property, that it has really carefully tried to manage the reputation of its characters in order to prevent them from being used in ways that would dilute them or corrupt them. These projects are kind of a joke that says, look, Disney, you can't tell us what to do anymore. Which is something we've seen with other figures, too. When the first Winnie the Pooh stories became public domain, there was a film called Winnie the Pooh, Blood and Honey that reimagined the characters as serial killers. Pooh, what happened to you after all these years? Christopher? The first thing people have as an instinct is to lash out against the idea that these are very carefully curated corporate mascots. I think for Disney particularly, Disney owns Marvel, Disney owns Star Wars, Disney owns a huge amount of the things that you'll go to the box office and see. There is the sense that it's eaten culture and that being able to do anything that offends Disney or that is the anti-Disney has power. But I'm imagining that we're probably also going to see people reinterpreting it more in other creative ways. We've seen remixes of Steamboat Willie that turn it into a dubstep track. There's a site called TechDirt that runs a public domain game jam every year. You go and look through what's become public domain in the last year, and you're trying to make a game that reinterprets these things and adds something to them. And it shows exactly the spirit of what's great about the public domain, that you can use these old things to create new works of art. The thing Disney has done really well is reinterpret old stories. And the public domain gives that possibility to anyone. 
Addie Robertson is the Senior Tech and Policy Editor with The Verge. This week, the Israeli military announced a new phase in its operations in Gaza. That includes shifting some of its soldiers out of the territory and moving them to the border with Lebanon, where fears of an all-out war are on the rise after the killing of a high-level Hamas political leader. But the bombardment of Gaza isn't over, and some experts say the level of damage to the territory could be unprecedented in modern warfare. By some estimates, between 30 and 40 percent of all the buildings in the territory have been damaged or destroyed. Jamin Vandenhoek has been using satellite and radar technologies to monitor the extent of the damage done in Gaza. He leads the Conflict Ecology Lab at Oregon State University. Jamin, good morning. Welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. You and your colleagues are using satellite technology to assess the destruction that's been brought by the war to Gaza. Can you describe the technology to us? The technology we use is satellite-based radar data. So you could imagine the radar satellite uh, making a flash, much like a, a camera would make a flash over the Earth's surface. And the radar satellite tries to sense the way that that flash gets reflected back into space. And those particular, the patterns of the reflected flash which would be basically a radar beam transmitted down and sent back, those uh, change depending on where you're at on the Earth. So built-up areas, forests, cities, glaciers all have a different pattern. What we do is we take uh, repeat observations over Gaza uh, with this satellite, which is the Sentinel-1 European Space Agency uh, satellite system, and we detect change, significant sustained change uh, during the war over the past uh, three months now. Those changes, when they're really large and when they persist, so basically things that would be indicative of damage to a structure, which normally would be very stable, if we see a drop in the kind of pattern, we see the kind of signal that that building provides or that area of the ground provides, we identify that as likely damaged. And um, we do that every week over the entire Gaza Strip. And we've been doing that since the start of the war. So we end up building kind of a timeline uh, of maps of damage across the Gaza Strip that are maps of, of damage. And if I'm understanding you, these maps are 3D maps in a way, because when you think of satellites, you think of Google Earth, it's a bird's eye view. So you can see the roof of my house, but you can't see the walls. But with radar, you're allowed that more expanded visual access that can go down the side of a structure and measure whether the wall still exists. Is, is that what you're saying? That's part of what's so uh, useful about using radar is that it is it, just as you're saying, it's not looking straight down with a bird's eye view. It's actually observing the Earth from an angle. Because of the orientation that the radar has to the Earth's surface and to cities and, and villages, we do have that sensitivity to what's happening uh, outside the exterior of a building, the walls of a building. Uh, that means that uh, large-scale damage that might happen, say, at the ground level, that kind of damage that may never get to the roof, these aren't you know, missiles falling from above, these are ground, these are firefights, explosions at the ground level, that's going to affect the side of the building in many cases, and we uh, are seeing that we have sensitivity to that kind of what we call lateral damage. Where does the technology come from? What, what, what was it being used for before you came to it? This particular satellite was launched in 2015. It is kind of a Swiss army knife and relevant for a bunch of different applications. Maybe the most common is mapping deforestation. 
but you can also detect agricultural change. Uh, people have used it a lot in, say, snow cover monitoring, glacial monitoring. In Canada, there's extensive applications of Sentinel-1 for looking at what's happening in, say, cryospheric patterns in boreal forests. Mm -hmm. It's been used uh, for monitoring damage from earthquakes. That's a little bit different, though, from what we're doing because the earthquake takes place you know, at a single moment in time, at a single location. There can be long-standing lingering effects, but we're not seeing sustained damage recurrent, you know, large scale damage week after week after week after week, like we're seeing in these urban conflict settings. Conflict has different kinds of patterns of damage uh, that the radar system is just as sensitive to as, as these other kinds of diverse applications. Well, let's talk about the damage that you've been measuring in Gaza, because we're told that it's unprecedented. What is the data you're looking at say about that? Yeah, we have been studying this since the uh, onset of this more. We've worked in Gaza before, and so we do have a little bit of a historical precedent just from our own experience studying uh, the effects of conflict in, in the Gaza Strip. Our most recent assessment, which takes us through um, the 24th of December, is suggesting that somewhere between, say, 40 and 50 percent of buildings in the Gaza Strip were likely damaged or destroyed. Uh, most of that is concentrated in the north, um, which really saw the brunt of the conflict up until the uh, initial ceasefire, and it's since shifted south. Um, there's still damage in the north that's been occurring every week, but really uh, the last couple of weeks, Khan Yunus has really been the hotspot. So uh, Rafa and Khan Yunus, the southernmost governorates in Gaza, Rafa is the one that borders the Egyptian border. It's also where the really only active exit is right now. Mm -hmm. These damage maps are updated every week. We get full coverage across uh, the Gaza Strip. And um, the pace that we're seeing in, in our experience of looking at previous conflicts in Gaza in 2014 and 2021, uh, this you know far surpasses anything we've seen before, uh, which historically has been fairly localized. This is widespread. It's persistent. Uh, this is a long, high-intensity conflict. And the speed of it has really been so surprising uh, to us. I mean, each new map that we've made of likely damage, it's been really surprising just to see the continual uptick of damage. In such a short period of time, we just see hundreds, if not thousands, more buildings damaged in a given governorate. So the speed has really kind of caught us off guard. But that's also in line with on-the-ground reporting where various humanitarian actors have basically said the same thing. The head of the World Food Program said that in their experience, the speed of this war has really been unprecedented. But it's interesting to have metrics to make those comparisons. Can you compare what's happening in Gaza to other recent conflicts like Ukraine or Yemen? Is, is it possible to have those comparisons to put it into context? To be honest, we haven't really had the bandwidth to do those kind of assessments yet. We have worked in, in Ukraine with this similar kind of approach. The pace that we're seeing in, in the Gaza Strip over the past three months is comparable to the level or the rate of damage in um, Mariupol, for example. So mm. it's really the hardest hit areas, uh, Bakhmut, these areas that have really make headlines as an epicenter of uh, fighting. Um, what, what are the implications of an elevated pace of bombing for a civilian population on the ground? The rate and the broad scale nature of the damage that we're seeing contributes to the sense that there's nowhere is safe and no time is safe. And it's the persistence, the relentlessness of the bombing. Um, we have 2 million people displaced in Gaza now mm -hmm. who have moved from the north into the south um, and are moving again, um, areas that were identified as being safe zones or 
so-called evacuation zones or evacuation corridors have also been hit. Every refugee camp has been hit. Um, I think that pace of it just adds tremendous uncertainty, not even to mention the extreme risk. Bombs are falling every day. This again is just, it's at such an unprecedented level and opportunities for return to North Gaza or Gaza when in all likelihood, many areas, many neighborhoods are literally unrecognizable. There's no landmarks left. It's flattened. Um, people have called it a moonscape. It's unfathomable, I would, I would imagine, to be returning to a part of Gaza Strip and see basically nothing that you recognize. The IDF have said that they're going after specific targets in Gaza, and critics, on the other hand, have called the bombing indiscriminate. What does your data say about it? We uh, really can't comment on the indiscriminate nature or the uh, sister concept of precision whether or not the IDF is striking the targets that they've intended to strike, we, we don't know. We don't know what the target list is. What we can say is, how does it not become indiscriminate when it's so widespread? Um, if it's not struck today, it'll be struck tomorrow. So claims over precision, which is a technical question, do you have the technical capacity to deliver a warhead where you want it to go? Mm -hmm. First of all, we can't assess that. But also, I, I find those claims or even pushbacks against those claims increasingly meaningless when you see uh, whole neighborhoods destroyed. Um, what's the difference if all of the targets were off by um, 100 feet or 100 meters? At the end of the day, the whole thing's destroyed anyway. Jamin Vandenhoek, thank you very much for being with us. Thanks so much. Jamin Vandenhoek leads the Conflict Ecology Lab at Oregon State University. Still to come on day six, a year of elections and what it will tell us about the fate of democracy. This could be a very bad year. Have you ever longed to escape reality or fantasized about stepping into someone else's shoes, even for just a little while? Hi, I'm Laura Mullen. And I'm Chris Tolley. We host CBC's Play Me, the immersive podcast that transforms theater into addictive audio fiction. Join us for a new season and disappear into a world rich with drama, where every show delivers hypnotizing stories and unveils intriguing characters with secrets. Play me wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Brent Bambury. You're listening to Day 6 from CBC Radio. We're on public radio stations across the United States. You can listen on demand with the CBC Listen app. And we are available wherever you get your podcasts. Also at cbc.ca slash day6. 1955? Hey, McFly! I thought I told you never to come in here. If they don't meet, they won't fall in love, they won't get married, and neither you nor your siblings will ever be born. That's a clip from the trailer for Back to the Future, the musical, and your weekly fix of Huey Lewis and the News. You're welcome. Back to the Future is one of several musical adaptations of popular films to hit the Broadway stage in recent years. It's a trend that's produced a slew of money makers, as well as some critical hand-wringing about whether blockbuster adaptations and jukebox musicals are leaving room for anything original. And Vox Culture reporter Asia Romano says that tension is as old as musicals themselves. From the very beginning, you had this kind of divergence in terms of what the musical was supposed to be. You know, was it supposed to be high art or was it supposed to be more reflective of popular culture and modern trends? So we asked Asia about the origins of musicals and what it tells us about this particular moment. 
Musicals actually evolved out of two competing impulses around the turn of the 20th century. Operetta, which is a form of, it kind of descended from European operas and um, oratorios and very kind of classical musical forms. And then you had vaudeville, which is <laughs> a popular form of American entertainment uh, in the 19th century and early 20th century that involved um, kind of loosely connected skits uh, and entertainment acts that may or may not have been connected to each other. If a man a boat, he can sail. And his rank and wealth, his strength and health, on seen or sure shall fail. And so these kind of very different forms converged uh, in New York in the, the early 20th century and became the early kind of form of musical comedy. So you would have like very loosely constructed plot built around popular songs that were being written by composers on Tin Pan Alley. Um, so you had composers like George Gershwin and Irving Berlin and Cole Porter who were churning out these, these classics of American pop culture that we still know and love today, many of those songs. Check, a total wreck, a flop, but if baby I'm the bottom, you're the top. Things really kicked off with Rodgers and Hammerstein in 1944 with Oklahoma. You had this show that for the first time ever in the history of the theater used all of the different musical and design and choreographical elements to tell the story. So you could watch the dance, but you wouldn't understand what was happening if you didn't also have the music and you would hear a song, but you wouldn't be able to take necessarily that song out of the context that was in. Everything's like a dream in Kansas City. It's better than a magic lantern show. You can turn the... Every composer, essentially, for the better part of the 20th century, who came after Rodgers and Hammerstein, were composing shows that told very fluid, uh, interconnected tightly structured plots and their scores advanced those plots and you went to see the musical as much for the the beauty and the 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 brilliance of those scores as you did for the story being told this was what we called the quote-unquote golden age of the musical during the 50s and 60s and then in the late 60s and 70s we saw a shift towards what we called the concept musical where musicals like Cabaret, Cabaret Hair, Chicago, Jesus Christ Superstar, One of you denies me, one of you betrays me, began to become a little bit more experimental with the form and the style of the the narrative and the structure that they were that they were working with and then of course throughout that period you also had the advent of Sondheim Stephen Sondheim and Sondheim really kind of took all of this to the next level so he was doing a lot of really interesting things that 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 came to really dominate the the landscape of American theater in the last uh, three or four decades. Like he became kind of the overall influence that nobody can really get away from if you're a composer in the musical theater. So if we think back to the 20s and 30s and the era when you had songs that could go in any type of loosely structured plot, 
we call those shows musical reviews and the modern equivalent of the the review is what we call the jukebox musical a storyline that has been built to show off those songs so if you think something like the jersey boys or mama mia must be funny in a rich man's world it's interesting because it's a hybrid because again all of these composers have been influenced by by the likes of Stephen Sondheim so now how do you apply that to modern Broadway where you have all of these shows where you either are familiar with the music going in or they're all adapted from really popular pre-existing IPs like Mean Girls or Legally Blonde. You have this kind of tension again between how do you make the musical, how do you keep advancing the musical as a form when sort of the popular impulse is to keep recycling these pre-existing popular things. We have shows like Hadestown, um, we have shows like Six, we have shows like Hamilton that have all been critical and popular successes. So if you think about how those musicals got to be popular, a lot of it had to do with uh, utilizing organic marketing via social media. They all got very, very popular through uh, like early previews of their music kind of going viral on the internet and f- and kind of cultivating hardcore interest from fans before the shows ever came out. You know, the bottom line is that people love the theater. They will keep continuing to create and to make art and and dance and musicals because they love them. And even if they come to their love of the theater through something that is considered regressive or lowbrow, there's still a strong chance that they can make from that love and from that passion something totally new that that continues to elevate the form. Asia Romano is a culture reporter for Vox. If we follow the trend that we're at and we don't do something now, I think 2024 will be the year we fall off the cliff. That will be the end of democracy. We will have elected enough illiberal leaders that the geopolitical balance of power will shift and democracy will die. That's journalist and Nobel Peace Prize winner Maria Ressa speaking in 2022. And now here we are in 2024, and as she predicted, democracy is being put to the test. Nearly 4 billion people, about half the world's population, will cast ballots this year. There will be elections in at least 60 countries, including India, Indonesia, Pakistan, Russia, Taiwan, Mexico, and of course, the United States. It all starts tomorrow with Bangladesh, where the Bangladesh Nationalist Party is boycotting the vote because they say that election will be neither free nor fair. So, not exactly an inspiring start. Doug Saunders is an international affairs columnist for the Globe and Mail. He's written about the upcoming wave of elections and what they might mean for democracy. Doug, good morning. Welcome back to the show. Good morning, Brent. Good to be with you. We just heard Maria Ressa describe 2024 as the year democracy could fall off the cliff. Do you think she's right? I think she has a pretty good read of things. Now, 2016 was described that way by many people as well. Mm-hmm. And I mean, 2020 as well, because of the significant U.S. election. 
It's fair to say, though, that because so many countries that are kind of on the balance between being free societies and being not so free are having elections that could tilt the balance this year, that we could be in trouble. We could be in a situation by the end of this year where we're very deeply worried about the future of democracy in some important countries. But but if you zoom out, some people might think that 4 billion people going to the polls this year, that's a sure sign that democracy is alive and well. Why isn't just the act of voting an assurance of democracy? Yeah, unfortunately, democracy, of course, is about more than just elections. It certainly, at a bare minimum, requires you to have an election where there's the possibility of voting out the person who is in power and having an opposition come to power. And a significant number of elections in the coming year don't even feature that minimum qualification. The election coming up in Russia, nobody's pretending that it will be anything other than Vladimir Putin winning. He's imprisoned or uh, caused the demise of any plausible opposition candidate. Mm -hmm. And there's a number of other countries where the elections are not really elections in any meaningful democratic sense. On top of that, democracy and living in a democratic society means a number of things that are important. It means having courts and opposition parties that are independent from government. It means uh, having full rights for all citizens, including you know women and members of minorities within the country. It means having a police and judiciary that serve the people rather than punish them for making the wrong decisions. And a number of countries have fallen off that way as well, have turned those institutions into the hands of the ruling party so that the society itself can't really be called democratic, even if it's having an election this year. You're calling those countries non-liberal democracies. So these are countries that have voting, but the institutions are weak or the rights have been taken away from people in such a manner so that people are slow to react until it's almost too late. It's kind of like a slow motion coup. How effective is that for the authoritarians in power, this kind of incremental illiberalism? It's the way that things are done now. There have been coups and takeovers by dictators in recent years. Notably, a lot of the countries of Sahara and Africa have had Mm -hmm. military coups, probably backed by Russia during the last two years. However, those are the exception rather than the rule. Nowadays, as opposed to a generation ago, uh, it's much more normal for democracy to collapse in a country gradually and under the name of democracy, in a way that calls itself democracy. Is is that what's going to happen in Bangladesh tomorrow when 150 million people go to the polls there? Unfortunately, yes. And, And we can say that with some certainty because a dozen years ago, Bangladesh was a fairly thriving democracy with two parties, both run by women, vying for power. Certainly some problems, some corruption and so on. But it, it was one of the most populated democracies in the world. Mm-hmm. The leader of the Bangladeshi government, Sheikh Hasina, has consolidated power in a way that I, I just described by silencing critics, by taking civil service and courts into her party's hands to the point that the opposition leader is under house arrest. The opposition party has boycotted the election. And I think the people of Bangladesh are being very ill-served in this election, which essentially will be a coronation of somebody who's, who is no longer a democratic leader. 
So that's one of the black marks for democracy. And, and as you mentioned, the, the, the outcome in, in Russia and, and, and probably in India is assured pretty much for, for the elections that are coming this year. But let's talk about the election that you say is most crucial. Today's January 6th. It's the anniversary of the attempt to overthrow the 2020 U.S. election. Uh, almost certainly it will be a choice between Joe Biden and Donald Trump this November. Americans must be getting tired of being told that this is the most important election in their lifetime. But you said it is. Why? Well, I think the whole world's a little bit tired of having to pay attention to elections in the United States in ways that affect their own lives in their own countries. Not to, not to belittle the fact that a lot of Americans are probably very nervous about what's going to happen in November. But um, it matters for people outside of the United States in two very important ways. One of which is that a victory by Donald Trump, who is openly illiberal, and I don't mean conservative, I mean, I mean opposed to what we call the institutions of the liberal state, the independent civil service and judiciary, for free transfer of power after a fairly fought election and all these other things. He sets an example political leaders in many other countries. You have people like uh, Bolsonaro, who is in power in Brazil, who's, who was overtly an imitator of Trump and his style. Mm -hmm. So that's one worry. There's also the fact that although Donald Trump is a force of chaos and disorder, uh, there would be something of a de facto block of parties of the extreme right and of various anti-democratic forces who would support each other, and in including the extreme left. I mean, Donald Trump's strange relationship with Kim Jong-un in North Korea, who's a nominally left-wing autocrat, mm -hmm. uh, suggests that it isn't so much about ideology. And I think this is an important fact about the crisis of democracy today, that is that it's not about ideology. It's about people who seek to hold power without the usual democratic checks and balances across ideological lines. Mm -hmm. And I, I think a big worry about November is that there will be a block of countries that include Russia and China and North Korea, for goodness sake, that appear to be winning, that are able to do things together, and that are going to put functioning democracies into a corner, much in the way that they were during the four years that Trump was in power after 2016. The democracies like Canada and the and Western European countries had to find new ways of working together to get around the United States. A return to that at this moment when a number of other countries are on the tipping point could create a very worrisome four years. So following that dire warning, then let's talk about the good news. What, where have you seen hope for democracy in the past year, the reverse of the backslide? Well, this year showed us a couple things. First of all, broadly speaking, a lot of the countries that had appeared to be good advertisements for illiberalism, for non-democracy, are doing poorly. But we also saw situations where the people of countries were able to, to reverse the backslide out of democracy, mm. and most notably in Poland a country where the governing party for eight years had done a number of things to roll back uh, democracy. It had seemed like the election in October was sure to be won by the PIS party, which is happy to call itself a, a party of the far right. Mm -hmm. And instead, there was a huge upwelling of resistance among the people of Poland 
and a victory of the Democratic coalition that really suggested that things could be done. And in following elections in places like uh, Hungary and Turkey, where the illiberal leaders had successfully prevented the opposition from gaining any hold despite popular support for the opposition. Right. So, so what, what appeared to have been inevitable in the case of Poland was, was avoided. And, and you write about a similar time in history when democracy appeared to be heading for the precipice, 1974, when Chile and India both had new authoritarian-leaning leaders. But then there were these countries like Portugal and Greece that became more democratic in, in an unexpected way. So 50 years ago, that was a turning point. Could 2024 be decisive in favor of democracy the same way that it was in 1974? Well, that's the interesting thing. We, don't, we might not know for a few years mm. uh, whether the outcomes of this coming year are the beginning of a negative wave or the end of a negative wave or the beginning of a positive democratic wave. So I looked back at 1974 um, because it was part of a period that some political scientists have described as the low point of the second wave of democracy. The second wave of democracy began after the Second World War and after the European empires ended in the post-war years. And you had a lot of countries in the 1950s and 1960s becoming nominally democratic. But then by the mid-70s, a lot of that had collapsed for a number of reasons, economic crises, um, the big one, of course, being the Cold War and, right. the, and that the left-wing autocracies had become very popular and, and very successful uh, and not just in, in Europe. But also there were right-wing dictatorships. There were at least three of them in Western and Southern Europe during mm -hmm. 1974, two of which saw the beginning of an end. So it, it would have felt like democracy was a passing fad to many people observing world elections in 1974. Yet, a few years later, you would have been able to say, wait, this is actually a year that marked maybe the, the bottom of the wave, but also the beginning of the, an upswing that saw a lot of countries shift back to democracy over the late 1970s and the 1980s, culminating, of course, in the big democratic revolutions in Central and Eastern Europe in 1989 to 1991, but also including things like South Korea very dramatically becoming a very thriving and functional democracy during the 1980s. A lot of, a lot of returns to democracy happening in Latin America during the 80s and 90s and that sort of thing. So we've talked about the good news and the bad news. On balance, what do you think the story of 2024 will be? Do you come out optimistic or pessimistic about the state of democracy? I remain guardedly optimistic in the medium term because there is not an alternative idea. People don't claim that, that you can have revolutions or collectivizations or uh, reichs that are going to overtake a country and turn it into a paradise. The strongman leaders today are just men who claim to be strong politically. So I do think that among voters and people of affected countries, the idea of a return to democracy will remain foremost in their minds. Uh, in the short term, however, I can't be quite so optimistic. This could be a very bad year. Uh, it's going to depend on a, a country by country basis. 
as much as we talk about this as a global shift away from free democracy in the world, it's it's a set of mm -hmm. country by country phenomena in big countries like the United States and India. Uh, but we're going to have to count on the voters of those countries to wake up and to decide to go to the polls and to prevent the worst from happening within their own countries. Doug Saunders, come back and talk to us in the first week of 2025, and we'll try to figure out what went right or where it all went wrong. I look forward to it, and I would say guardedly optimistically. <laughs> Thanks very much for being with us, Doug. Happy New Year. It's a real pleasure. Thanks, Brent. Doug Saunders is an international affairs columnist for The Globe and Mail. From the headlines. And here we go. This is Riff from the Headlines, our weekly quiz. Three riffs linked by one story in the news. If you guess the story that links the riffs, you could win a day six tote bag. First, here's a recap. This is our previous clue. What's new, pussycat? Whoa, whoa, whoa. What's new, pussycat? Whoa. Schilling and Major Tom, Ariana Grande with NASA, and Tom Jones, What's New, Pussycat, and Julie Becker of Vancouver correctly guessed the headline that we're looking for. NASA streams its first video from deep space, and it's a cat. Congratulations, Julie. A day six tote bag will be on its way to you soon. Now, here's this week's clue. for the story that connects those riffs. Email us your answer, put riff from the headlines in the subject, and send it to day6 at cbc.ca. Please include your mailing address. One right answer will be picked at random, and the prize is a day6 tote bag. You can always hear the clues again anytime at cbc.ca slash day6. from the headlines. And that's our show for this week. Day 6 was produced by Lori Allen, McKenna Hadley-Burke, Sarah Melton, and Pedro Sanchez. Our senior producer is Gord Westmacott, and I'm Brent Bambury. It's seven days to Taiwan's election, one day to the Golden Globes, and seven days till we meet again on Day 6. Gorge, I can't believe you fellas are taking me to potato land.
For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.